Welcome to another episode of Unpacking Bexley. This is a podcast focused on exploring and analyzing the many different aspects of life and culture in the city of Bexley. We're going to do this through interviews, local community members, historians, and other experts as well, covering a wide range of topics that are important to people here in Bexley. Hi, I'm Larry Diatley Ellison. I'm a member of Bexley DEI as well as Bexley Pride. And today I am joined with... Spencer Cahoon. I'm also a member of Bexley DEI and one of your fine neighbors here in the city of Bexley. Stacy Grossman, also a member of Bexley DEI and community member. Jeff Beam. I'm a Bexley neighbor and happy to join you today. And we're glad to have you. All right. So I think our topic today is on affordable housing. And I will admit that I have heard a lot about affordable housing. We've talked about it in the past for our organization, but I don't know a whole lot about it. So I was hoping we could talk more about it today so I can get educated. Maybe we could educate a couple of our community members as well. That sounds great. And I think everybody's at a different level in their knowledge about affordable housing and housing in the community in general. So that's why we have uh, Mr. Jeff Beam with us. And we'll be joined later by Mayor Ben Kessler talking about some of the projects that the city's been working on in that area. So we got a lot of people working at high levels in the city. Now, probably most folks know Ben Kessler or at least by reputation, if not by title. But Mr. Beam, I suspect you are not quite as well known. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you're affiliated with and what knowledge you bring to this area? Sure thing. I have lived in Bexley for the last 11 years, this 4th of July weekend. I love it here the same way I think all of you do and many of our neighbors do. But professionally, I work for an organization, a nonprofit organization called The Community Builders, who I began my career with in Boston, working on affordable housing development, mixed income housing development which I think we'll unpack those definitions in a minute. Right. Boston, exactly the same as Bexley, right? Just for the record. (laughs) In many similar ways and different, of course, in others. And then moved to Ohio because my wife is from central Ohio and brought my career here uh, and have worked for the Community Builders or TCB here in central Ohio and in the states surrounding for those 11 years that I've been here. Okay, fantastic. So you have the deepest background of anyone here today, with the possible exception of Ben Kessler, who's been working in the area for a while as well, although any mayor, by definition, is handling many, many things, jack of all trades. So we have a number of affordable housing projects that the city's been looking at or playing with, and your organization or the organization you work with, the community builders, is right on the forefront of a couple of those that are being under consideration now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where those projects are cited, what they would look like, and some of the aspects of that, just for folks who might not have been paying as much attention over the last couple of years. Sure. So the projects are large in the context of Bexley in terms of not a lot changes here. It's a landlocked environment. We don't redevelopment property that often. But in the context of TCB, these are a part of a range of projects that we do up to 600 units that are 10-year whole neighborhood transformations. So this is, in a transactional sense, a fairly small, fairly straightforward project of infilling vacant properties uh, or unoccupied properties with new housing. We knew, because of my familiarity with Bexley and our conversations with the mayor and and council and and the CIC and others, that we weren't going to propose like one big giant project that just wouldn't fly here, it wouldn't be appropriate, and it would stick out like a sore thumb. So we wanted something that we felt would lean in the direction of good planning, put some density on the corridors, but density that's appropriate for Bexley, and put housing 
in the context of neighbors, right? Not isolated, not in a corner of the neighborhood, but instead mm. ingrained in all of the same walkable paths to school and grocery and the other parts of daily life that we love about our community. So we spent three years looking for properties for that, that would work for that purpose, that were available and that were remotely affordable so <laughs> the project economics would work. Right. That, that's been a challenge, I think, for everyone coming to Bexley recently or moving within Bexley recently because housing costs, property costs have just been skyrocketing in the last handful of years. That's right. And, and to be honest, it took us three years. And if we hadn't landed when we had, mm. we probably would be still looking because prices have skyrocketed so much more in the last two years than they had previously. So briefly, the projects themselves. So there are two different buildings. One is located on North Cassidy in the sort of new sort of neighborhood center corridor there by the police station. It is the current site of the Bexley Senior Center, which was not a planned use when we acquired this. It was an idea that our project was going to take a while. What's a really good use for this building in the time in between? And then there is a second site on the site of a former funeral home on Livingston Avenue near college. Gotcha. And that's the funeral home that's right over there by the tire center on the corner of College and Livingston? Exactly. It's, it's our property exactly at the corner of Francis and Livingston. Got uh, it. And the tire center is on the other side of the same block. Okay, perfect. So those are the sites. And zoning is a big deal uh, around housing and development in general. And zoning gives a lot of limitations for a group like the community builders or any other developer in coming in as to where you can be. Now, our zoning happened years ago, uh, and it is always subject to revision. And no doubt, in probably a few years, we'll look at that again, and we'll create new zoning regions. How much did you all look at changing the zoning in an area versus working within existing zoning in citing your project? We looked very, we did not want to change the zoning in any place where we were going to select. We thought, A, that would be a challenge, and B, we thought we would demonstrate we were leaning into what Bexley already wanted to do. Gotcha. Uh, we were doing this in full collaboration with the city, and we wanted to lean into the city's own planning documents about where they want this kind of housing to be located or these kinds of developments to be located. So, so our sites both allow multifamily housing without any change to zoning. There are always site-specific variances or, or things like that that you need, and that's true in our case as well. But the use themselves were allowed on these properties. Gotcha. So there, there's no rezoning necessary for any of these projects. Correct. Now, what will this actually look like? I, I know on Main Street, we've had some redevelopment where there is mixed-use housing, there is commercial on the first floor, housing on the second floor, and then we have other areas where it's all multifamily housing or some conglomeration of that. What is that going to look like, and how is that going to work for people who would be living in these places? So we like mixed use, but because we wanted to create the most affordable housing units we could on a limited piece of land, knowing we would not be allowed to build large buildings, we had to keep the sizes of the buildings reasonable, which meant not having a lot of extra square footage that wasn't dedicated to the housing. Sure. So on Livingston, rather than make the building taller by putting commercial on the ground floor, we thought Livingston is a street that already has 130 houses along the sort of Bexley and Berwick corridor there. So mm -hmm. it's an all residential strip kind of right up to college. So we thought, oh, this is a good site to sort of transition that. It will be all residential, but it will be next door to, it'll be sort of bridging between the single family housing and the commercial to one side. The project on Livingston helps us 
lean into what the city wanted to do from a planning context, but it also let us naturally transition from all the single family housing along Livingston to the east and the commercial that's on the west side of the site. So a multifamily housing property that's all residential seemed like a nice transition there. Mm -hmm. I think there are folks who reasonably disagree about that, but we certainly feel it's appropriate and sensitive to the surroundings. Um, The building itself is three stories tall. The entrance faces a parking lot to the rear and Livingston in the front door, and it very intentionally reflects the massing that is part of the Livingston corridor plan. And with that site, right there by the tire shop at Livingston and Francis, if you go right across the street, which is not technically Bexley, I think we're in Berwick, which is city of Columbus, but that's all multi-story, multi-family units directly across the street, right? Exactly. In fact, we looked very much at those buildings as the precedent for the scale and feel of the buildings, uh, and even initially at the architecture. And I think the Tudor style that we looked to represent actually got some pushback um, hmm. from our conversations in the public and from the architectural review board. I suspect that design will change as the project moves forward, but that's the scale and feel of the buildings we were looking to replicate. So I am getting a sense for what these projects look like, but I do want to take one step back again, like not knowing a lot about affordable housing and just talk about what, so now that I have this vision in my brain about the projects and and where we're doing this in the city, like talk about what does that, what does affordable housing mean in terms of these buildings that I can now see in the locations that we're talking about? That is a great question and my least favorite question. (laughs) Uh, And it's worth spending a minute on. um, So I appreciate you asking it. What is affordable housing is the, it's an, it's really important. And it is the question we expect to hear in every one of our projects. We then often give answers that sound like non-answers to anyone who's listening because the definition is so contextual. It's so different. Affordable to whom, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's step back and kind of build this up if we can. Affordable housing, a pretty universally acceptable definition is that it's affordable to people making who have to spend less than a third of their income to live there. And so if the people who are living there have two-thirds of their income left over for food and the other pieces of life, then that housing is affordable to them. So then the important question that really is the subtext of the question is affordable to whom, right? So that's the really important, that's the rub of this. And so TCB believes very strongly, A, in extending affordability to everyone. And so we try to represent the entire economic ladder in our projects. We have, in in most of our projects, there's a wide range of incomes that people make and then therefore the rents they pay to live there. So in the context of the buildings we've proposed in Bexley, we do have a big range. We've got units that are affordable up to people who are making 80% of like the Columbus Metro average income. That's a pretty standard Bexley income. Someone who's making 60% of the area median income, which is the terminology we use in Bexley makes $65,000 a year. So, so and, that, and that that's a pretty high range, right? And that we're talking household income. So it, it is household income. So again, I give kind of a non-answer because all of these very specific income limits associated with households range by the size of your your household size. So if you're an individual living alone, 
your income limit is going to be lower than someone who's a family of five, a household of five. So it, so our answers tend to move around a little bit, but I'll try to say as simply as I can, this project will have units set aside for people who make up to, you know, those 60s, 70s, $80,000 a year. It will have a few stepping stones below that for people who make more moderate incomes. And then it will have 13 units that have a, a rental subsidy attached to them. So if someone has a voucher, it will be a project-based voucher where someone who has any income, any very low income, could live there and be supported by the rental subsidy. And we're really proud. I'm really proud as a resident that Bexley has a source of income discrimination law now because people who have those incomes and who have access to a rental subsidy should be able to live wherever they can find housing. Uh, and I'm glad Bexley is a place that's welcoming those households. And I, I will take a moment with that source of income to give a shout out to uh, Amy Claben with Move to Prosper, who's been moving around the broader Columbus metro region, uh, helping city councils to pass that law. And Lorianne Feibel, who has been working extensively with them, was the supporter, brought the law in, and Bexley DEI and others. I know I spoke on that law when it was in front of city council. So there's been a lot of people working on that. And it, it's one small way we can move toward having a greater equity and greater diversity and openness in our community. And I think that's great. So everyone who's been working on that, shout out to you, because it takes a community to make it happen. Now, it sounded from what you were telling us about what affordability will look like in these developments that the, the top amount of that would be about 80% of area median income going all the way down to someone who is working but maybe making a very low percentage of area median income. So the full spectrum up to 80%. That's right. And I know affordable housing definitions vary. So in your eyes, is that 80% and below what looks like affordable housing, or is it something that can reach into other regions or that varies by rental versus ownership? If I'm understanding your question, I do think the 60% of area median income or 80% of area median income is pretty conventionally understood, market to market, location to location, as an affordability threshold. When there are places that incentivize across the country, when there are places that incentivize or require affordability, they will usually use those benchmarks to say you must set aside a number of units meeting that income limit and you will have met your affordability requirements. Does Bexley follow the same AMI that Columbus does or is there more of a national level that the TCB is following? That is a great question because that really gets at the root of what I was saying before, affordable to whom? So by requirement, by IRS requirement with the financing we're using, the area median income means Metro Columbus. So let me give a couple of stats that may help. So 60% of area median income, let's use like a three-bedroom household just to, or th I'm sorry, three-person household as an example. In Columbus Metro, somebody who's making 60% area median income makes about $52,000 a year. Bexley that same three-person household in our census tracts is $66,000 a year, 25% more living just in our census tract. In Driving Park, a couple of blocks away, $37,000 a year. So, so huge variation. Huge variation. So someone who lives in Driving Park is not going to look at an 80% AMI unit available in Bexley and say, oh, that's affordable to me. So that's really that's why we believe the most important part is the mix. Mm -hmm. So that there is an apartment that meets anyone's definition of affordability. 
And I have a follow-up question to that. If they are able to increase the income once they move into the building, are they able to stay or at a certain point do they need to look for different housing if they hit that 80%? So in the tax credit rules, there are annual income recertifications. So if someone, when they get recertified, is above that limit, they no longer qualify for a unit that's set aside there, which is in some ways a great story of mobility and that someone has taken advantage of the resource and maybe improve their life circumstance, and we can make that unit available for someone else who needs it. But it also can sometimes be a challenge for someone who has sort of just barely exceeded Mm. eligibility, but isn't quite ready to stand on their own. So we work very closely with all the residents to make sure they're, they're both positioning their lives to have that kind of mobility advancement, but that they're ready for what those changes, what those changes will entail. Are there resources available to families or individuals who reach that cap through TCB that can help them find housing once they are able to leave? So I, uh, one thing I love about TCB is that we are not exclusively real estate developers. I'm a developer and work on that side of our business, but there are huge sections of our organization that are focused on operating properties, high quality, responsive, good community uh, stakeholders. And then there's a whole other division that we call community life, which is all of the sort of resident and community facing elements of the project. So on this project, we've been talking to Jewish Family Services, who's right across the street from the Livingston site. That's true. About all of the ways to connect with them. We've talked to Celebrate One. We've talked to um, Move to Prosper. So they're not going to necessarily work with everyone in the building, but the theoretical household you're talking about that's moving out of affordable housing eligibility, ready to sort of maybe take on equity, become a homeowner, those things. Man, Amy Claben would be the exact right person to talk to and make sure we have a plan, right? That our community life team is working with Amy to sort of say, okay, these folks are ready, right? At the same time, we might have somebody else who's way at the bottom of the economic spectrum. We are helping them come back from maybe a pretty dark place in their lives and a stable house, a stable, safe, good quality house is the absolute best platform for that. And working with JFS and working with other service partners will will help that family kind of reach a level of stability that then lets them start to build. And you mentioned um, there's federal funding that goes into this project. And I know with federal funding comes many, many strings attached. So what kind of period are we talking about for affordability? And if you're looking to extend that period, how would that process work? Just so people understand not just what we're getting today, but what we're getting down the road. So there's there are layers to this. So by the 1986 Tax Reform Act that created the housing tax credit, the requirement is 15 years of affordability. Now, the Ohio Housing Finance Agency believes this is a pretty scarce resource. We want to get as much as we can with this resource. So they will require that anyone who gets that resource actually double the affordability period and require for 30 years. And when you're talking about a mission-oriented nonprofit like TCB or many of our peers, we're talking about perpetuity. We are not doing this to wait out some federal benefit and then flip the property to some other use. We are very interested in creating, preserving, owning, maintaining quality affordable housing forever and ever. 
And what does that look like on the ground? Does that look like a new stream of federal funding at the end of that? Does it look like different state incentives? Or do we have to partly wait and see? Because if you're talking about 30 years, obviously a lot can change in the landscape during that time. 30 years is too long to wait for new infusions of cash to, to, to help a project you know, get refreshed. Any apartment building, no matter who's living in it, gets a fair amount of use and abuse, and you need to replace heating systems, roofs, and things like that. So sure. generally, it, it can vary, but generally after about 20 years, the project is eligible to kind of go back in for new resources and get a physical rehabilitation, kind of recapitalize the financing behind the project and kind of set it up for another generation of life. I know I've heard questions from the community about parking and Section 8 housing that concern people for various reasons. What would you respond to people who bring up those sorts of questions to you? I think I would say... First, let's get income out of the equation. A multifamily building that is not well managed is going to be a bad neighbor. Residents will park where they want. Residents will make noise when they want. Residents will not be neighborly. A multifamily building that's well managed, no matter who lives in it, can be a great neighbor, right? And TCB is an organization that has been around for a long time and prides ourselves on professional management and really community-facing operations. So we expect to be a good neighbor. So it's possible that a household will be having a tough time. But having a secure property that has maintenance and has staff and that has resources for that family to go to if they need help is a way to keep that from becoming situations that you often see that where public services and emergency services have to be involved much more frequently. I mean, that last piece you said really stands out to me. I think a lot of people are in properties that are managed essentially remotely by a larger corporation. And there's really no resources on site if something comes up. They're like, ah, well, you got to figure that out. Uh, So that, that really strikes me when you say it. It sounds like a real difference compared to other properties I've seen in the greater area. Yeah. I mean, people often ask, why is affordable housing so expensive to create? It's because there are all, if you do it well, there are lots of safety factors and elements that you have to, belts and suspenders you create so that you can ensure that it's decent, safe, sanitary, and healthy and thriving. Initially, the proposal had included CIC as a partner, a community partner. Is TCB fully in charge of the both proposals now, or are there still community partners that are stepping in? We, the city and the CIC as an extension of the city, have always been close partners in terms of the concept of the project and an allied effort in advancing them and in securing the properties. Uh, that has always been true. The one thing that has changed is we specifically proposed the CIC as a co-owner in the project. And to be honest, that was about positioning the project for competitive resources. We got points for having a local nonprofit partner. And while we're a nonprofit and our office is on the east side, we weren't technically considered a local nonprofit because we did not yet have other central Ohio units created. This is our first project here. So that dynamic went away from the competitive elements. So when we had to apply again in an effort to get those resources, we didn't need the CIC to be a formal partner. We also recognized some people were uncomfortable with that level of the CIC being embedded in the project. So TCB is is the owner, and we have a different nonprofit partner that is with us because we do believe there are benefits to this sort of local grounding. So CHN, who has provided Mm -hmm. low-income housing for folks and who have Bexley connections personally as well, they are a partner in the project. I would say 
just for clarity, TCB is the one who's accountable for delivering it, for owning it, for managing it, for being responsive to the community. But we really, really enjoy having collaborators who are really rooted locally. And CHN, for anyone who's not familiar, that's the community housing network. They work in the broader Columbus metro area with all sorts of housing needs. And they, they've been here for a long time. Long in my past, I used to be a social worker with Lutheran Social Services. I worked with people who were experiencing homelessness crises and helping to get them back into housing. And CHN was around then, and they're around now, and they, they do great work. And I need one more, Spencer. So C I've heard CIC a lot as well, and I think it would be helpful to explain what CIC is in this context as well. Gotcha. CIC, and anyone can correct me if I get the name off, because names are usually not my thing, is the Community Improvement Corporation, and it is essentially Bexley's economic development arm. It's got some folks from city council. It's got different folks from the community with different types of expertise, and they help look for ways to encourage development and redevelopment in our community and bring in new business and new opportunity. One other question with the TCB development, specifically on Livingston, and this has mired both projects, unfortunately. There's been some litigation by residents who are concerned about what these projects will look like, and right now that has the projects on hold while it's going through the Court of Appeals process right now. And since we don't have a final decision from the Court of Appeals, it's impossible to know exactly what the future is of this project in its exact iteration at the moment. What is TCB's plan? Obviously, if the Court of Appeals signs off on it, it moves forward just like we've talked about. So that, that's the easy one. But if the Court of Appeals doesn't for some reason, what's TCB's contingency plan for these areas? It's, it is a good question, and I won't say we have 100% certainty behind the answer, but we know that TCB is committed to this project and have, have gone a long way toward creating and projects that we think are responsive and, and will continue to do that as we advance. The city is incredibly supportive of this outcome and is continuing to look for opportunities through this project or others to create this kind of housing affordability. And our funders have one by one sort of stepped up and said, ignore our statutory deadlines. We have ways in which we can ensure that when you are ready, the resources are there. Because again, this kind of project, putting housing affordability in a place that is so resource rich as Bexley and such a quality community that we all love, this is an absolute home run from a housing policy. So people really want to support these projects. So what the specific entitlement and legal maneuvers will be to try to help get that to fruition, I don't know. Sure. But do we want to still develop these projects regardless of the court's ruling? Absolutely. Gotcha. So thank you for that, because I think people have been wondering where that's going, and we'll keep wondering where it's going until we get some answers from the courts, unfortunately. Right now, we are able to welcome Ben Kessler, mayor of the city of Bexley, who's going to talk with us a little bit about what Bexley is doing with affordable housing right now. And before we jump into it, I want to give credit where credit's due first. Affordable housing historically has not been an issue addressed um, in the city of Bexley by the city. So Ben, you deserve credit for taking that challenge on. Thank you. Spencer, thanks for having me this morning or day or whatever we are in this podcast. World. <laughs> sure. People are listening <laughs> asynchronously. So we're timeless. Today. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for having me in this time continuum. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Thank, thank you for joining <laughs> Uh, now, there's two main affordable housing developments that the city's involved with, at least that we're familiar with right now. And one is the perspective development by the community builders that has both a Cassidy and a Livingston site. 
And then there's also the ownership transfer and renovation of the apartments across from Trinity Lutheran Seminary on Main Street. Could you tell us a bit about the city's involvement with each of those developments? Yeah, so I'm going to start with the, the first one you mentioned, which is the Community Builders Project, and then go into the, the question of the Trinity Apartments. So Community Builders is a affordable housing developer that's has a national footprint. They have a Midwest footprint, and one of the developers lives in the city of Bexley. When we did an RFP several years back, I want to say it was maybe even as far back as 2018. I'd have to dust off my records to really know this. We put out an RFP to assist the city slash the CIC in identifying potential for affordable housing development in Bexley. Long story short, we, we went out and we said, hey, what? how could we uh, reimagine this area uh, for the next generation of housing? And also, knowing that it's going to take some time to do that, where can we find opportunity for affordable housing throughout the city? Specifically, we were interested in integrating affordable housing with, I would say, market rate housing, housing, you know, that across the spectrum of the city. And, and I think I want to pause for a second and acknowledge and affirm that affordable housing has been in Bexley's DNA from the beginning, even if not in the areas we're talking about. You know, we have areas of the city with smaller lot sizes, smaller home sizes, where middle class central Ohioans could afford to buy a home and raise a family in the city. And that that economic condition is is evaporating in front of our eyes. I think that we're finding that I think the city does play a role in not only ensuring that we continue to have economic uh, demographic diversity in the city, but also that where there is affordable housing, that we're ensuring there's a quality of life and a standard of uh, a standard of improvement, a standard of living conditions that provides dignity and you know an, an equal playing field to all of our residents. And so we entered into, it wasn't even a contract, we entered into a partnership uh, with community builders where we said, they, they came forward, they said, you know, here's sort of what we can do. And they were very eager to work with the city and the city's economic arm, which is called the Bexley Community Improvement Corporation, the CIC is how I refer to it. And started off just kind of brainstorming, where is their land that could, even accommodate additional housing in the city. And, you know, there's there's limited supply. Obviously, we're a built-out city. And there's the economic conditions for affordable housing still dictate that, like, you're not purchasing the $2 million an acre land. Like, it just does not economically work that way. So where is there land that is relatively affordable? And I say relatively because this is where the CIC comes in here in a second. And, you know, doesn't only sequester affordable housing in one area of the city. And so literally they scoured the market and we provided them as much information as we could, but they just kept looking. And over time, the the two sites that we're currently looking at emerged as two viable potential sites. The one is at North Cassidy. Uh, in that instance, the Bexley Community Improvement Corporation actually purchased that property, knowing that no matter what, it was a former gas station that would need some environmental remediation and would need some assistance in order to potentially be redeveloped and returned to market. And then uh, the community builders identified on their own, they identified the former, at the time it was still a current funeral home at Livingston and Francis, and they went into contract on that. And the reason the CIC went into contract on a property was because 
the economics for affordable housing are not favorable to communities like Bexley. And, and it's why even Columbus has, has created a fund to assist affordable housing. Worthington has passed a bond to assist affordable housing. Uh, and Bexley, we did the same thing. We just did a little bit differently. Instead of passing um, a bond, we went ahead and purchased real estate. And that was a way for us to contribute financially to uh, a potential development. And so the CIC in the city, the CIC is, a, is an agent of the city, are active participants in this development. And what that means is we're actively supporting it through that real estate. We are not uh, profit sharing. We will probably enter into a essentially $1 a year sort of lease um, on the ground at North Cassidy. Uh, we are we are contributing that land over in long-term land lease is the current concept. None of this has been formalized in any contract. Um, we're contributing the land uh, in order to encourage the type of housing that we feel is necessary to elevate the standard of existing affordable housing in the city. And also, you know, just provide some, some additional options above and beyond what we currently have. So that's a very, okay. <laughs> that's a very long answer to your, your very quick question. And then <laughs> I'm going to address the Trinity apartment site is it's not a city project. The, the Trinity apartment site is adjacent to the city. It's uh, it was offered in the open market by Capital University. Um, they had a competitive RFP process. They selected the buyer. Uh, we have changed our economic development tools so that if if a development wants a property tax abatement on Main Street, which every residential de development has taken advantage of since the early 2000s, if they want one, they need to have a um, an affordability component to the housing. So not like not affordable housing, capital A, capital H, but um, a, a certain percentage of those units need to be at priced at 10% at 100% of the uh, median income for the region. What that means is a medium house, a median household uh, putting 30% of their income into housing, which is the sort of federally determined ratio, would be able to afford uh, a unit at the de development. And then to 10% of the units would need to hit an 80% target. So 80% of the medium income uh, putting, their, putting their income into rent would be able to afford it. If the developer meets those criteria, the developer would be automatically able to pursue a 100% tax abatement on the, on the site. So two things there. First, we've never offered a 100% tax abatement. So again, we're putting a robust incentive to help, to help developers afford affordable housing because it is a big hit to a market rate uh, apartment complex to do that. Um, this new model we're using is the same that Columbus has had for a few years now. So it's 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 like it's com comfortable and familiar to the development community. And the theory is that developers who have used it before will be able to easily understand it and navigate the process if it's something they're interested in. Sure. Let me build off that for a second. I think we were wondering coming in like where those numbers came from. And hearing you say that Columbus has had that model for a minute is helpful. Columbus for a while has had that 10% at 100% of area median income and 10% at 80% of area median income standard for affordable housing. But yep. about a year ago, they changed those standards. So now in Columbus, it's 10% uh, at 60% of area median income and 10% at 80% of area median income, or alternatively, 30% at 80% of area median income. And it's been that way for about a year now. So what influenced Bexley in deciding to use the, the prior standards in Columbus as opposed to what they're using at the moment? 
Yeah, um, that's a good call out. So first off, when we were developing it, Columbus had not passed that. So we were still working off of what they had, but I had heard rumors that they were uh, looking at passing it. Um, I don't think it's been quite a year, but maybe it's been a year in the making for sure. So as they as they were working on that, we looked at that. We looked at the economics of land in Bexley and what was realistic and where the gap was. And so even today, if you look at the cost to a developer of, of basically the developer saying, okay, so if we do this, 10% of our units at 100% AMI, we are basically providing a lower rent to somebody but it's not like it's a different type of unit. It's the same unit. So the developer is, there's a cost associated with them subsidizing that rent. And in modeling that, it's already a toss up if the cost of them doing that would equal the value of the abatement. As in the abatement might not even pay for them to do that. So it might not adequately incentivize them mm-hmm. based upon the cost of land, the cost of developing in Bexley on Main Street, which is the most likely area where this will currently be used. So it felt like if we moved to that more aggressive model, which was Columbus was discussing, but still hadn't been rolled out uh, with the economics of the Bexley corridor, it wouldn't, it, no developer would ever take it up. And in fact, we've found that to be true already because as the, the developer who has gone into contract on the site we're talking about has entered into contract and is doing those numbers, I think they're finding that they can't afford to provide that sort of housing that the it will cost them more than the value of the abatement mm-hmm. would provide to them. So that was a thought. If we could clarify on that, is that just yeah. because housing prices are higher in Bexley and the expected rents from the property would be higher than what a similar developer might be looking at in other areas of Columbus or surrounding communities? Or is there another factor at work there? I think it's, it comes down to land. So land value is higher. And it's a funny thing that you ask that question because they're current, this is an untested theory. There's currently not an apartment product in Bexley that is on par with the apartment products that you find in the short north or you know downtown mm-hmm. Columbus. So the rents that they're receiving in those districts, even upper Arlington, the price per square foot they can command for those units exceed anything we have in Bexley. So the developer is already saying, I, you know, I'm thinking I can get this rent. It seems like I can get this rent, but there's nothing out there that would tell me I can get this rent. The rent is driven by the cost of construction and the land, the cost of the land. And of course, there's a profit margin for any developer. The cost of the land is such that, you know, we're talking about in the realm of two to $3 million per acre is what is being asked for uh, developable land in Bexley. That is a, much higher cost per acre than in, in some other districts within the central Ohio area. It's on par with some other districts as well. So you just have sure. to be cognizant of like, anytime you're incentivizing something, what, how does this look a little different in, the, in this district compared to another one? And try, try our best to you know, put forward something that will uh, actually get adopted and used by the development community. So that's the hope, that's the theory. A lot of economics behind that, and it, they could be wrong. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, there's every every site is different, every project is different. I'm I'm hopeful that that it will move the needle. I'm a little concerned that it's not enough. To tell you the truth, it's the same conversation we're having throughout the region right now. When when local leaders meet up and talk about housing and how to encourage it and how to make it happen in a way that's affordable for people, there just aren't the tools there to adequately essentially buy down the cost of development to make it so that there's some affordability. Everything is just so inflated right now. 
Yeah. And there's been an extreme housing pressure on the Columbus metropolitan area, which includes Bexley, just because there's been so many people moving in for economic reasons and other various governmental reasons. So I I think we experience that like everyone else, right? That's part of our, the pressure we're dealing with. Yeah, for sure. One last thing I want to say to answer your question about, you know, Columbus is doing 60, 80 now, you know, Bexley's talking about 80, 10, 8,100. So not only is there a a difference in overall cost in this district. So you kind of look at like, what is the cost per square foot here as compared to others? But the, you know, the perception of affordable housing is very negative. I would say, Mm. generally speaking, right? When we use this term affordable housing, there's a negative connotation associated with it. I don't want to shy away from that term because I think it's been co-opted in a negative way. And I think it's a phenomenon that, you know, our community has always had. So let's be honest about it. Uh, Bexley has always had a segment of affordable housing. That doesn't mean what some people say necessarily. That doesn't mean Section 8 housing, whatever that means. That's, again, a very vague term that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. People often use it in a negative way. Um, it means that, like, the, you know, the working, the teacher, the police officer, the firefighter, we use these terms because everyone loves teachers, police officers, well, not everyone. But, you know, it's a, it's a this is a profession that, is expected to be able to afford to live in our community, there is a tradition that a a person in that sort of a profession would be able to live in the city of Bexley. That is getting harder and harder. And so affordable housing can mean heavily subsidized, like, uh, you know, voucher-based housing, or it can mean simply housing that's accessible to a young professional or a working parent. You know, I think that also gets captured in this concept of like the 100%, 80%. There's a wide array of ways to make sure that your housing is affordable beyond between vouchers and between luxury housing, right? There's a huge spectrum of, of variables there. So we are, we are pursuing a voucher-based project here with community builders. We are also nudging and encouraging preservation of the idea that there's affordability among you know, the young professionals, the young working not even young, just working uh, the average person uh, in our region, uh, even as you know, hopefully we're seeing the quality of housing elevated in our Main Street District. One, thank you so much for filling us in on that, because obviously you've been working with this closely. So you have a, an in-depth knowledge that I think a lot of people in the community lack. So thank you for sharing your expertise. Let's talk a little bit about the TCB project, because that, that's been talked about in the community. There's been town halls. I think there's a little bit more awareness of what that may look like if it comes to fruition. Quick history lesson for everyone listening who is slightly less aware. It's been pitched. It's been cited, as we talked about here. There was some litigation by residents near the Livingston site who fought that in court. The Court of the Common Pleas level put that on hold, basically said that that was not permissible as is. The city's in the process of appealing that right now. We're waiting on the appeal. And then there's also prospects for dealing with that differently through the zoning code or something else. So what's the status of that litigation right now? And what's the city's expectation for where that's headed? Sure. So the status of the litigation is it's at the uh, 10th District Court of Appeals, um, which is the, the, the body that would hear appeals to decisions that have been made at the county court level. The contention is that the zoning, it's a commercial service zoning district. Um, And the commercial service zoning district allows for dwelling units, plural, on Mm -hmm. property 
subject to satisfaction of some conditional zoning criteria, which is to say the zoning board has discretion in saying no to dwelling units on the first floor, which is the part of that proposal. And it allows dwelling units above the first floor, I believe. So the condition was reviewed by the Board of Zoning and Planning. The Board of Zoning and Planning found that it was appropriate and they issued a certificate of appropriateness for that proposal. And the, the court case focuses on the contention that our zoning, when it says dwelling units on first floor, somehow didn't mean multifamily. So if we were to contend that dwelling units don't mean multiple dwelling units on Livingston, then you would say that Gateway, uh, the Alexander condominium complex, one Dawson, all of the apartments that exist on Main Street, and there are a lot that exist above first floor uses, would not be legal based upon the same thesis, right? Mm -hmm. So I find the case puzzling, to tell you the truth. It's, it's odd because, mm -hmm. again, there was a conditional use provided in our code. The conditional use was reviewed. The standards for that conditional use were were reviewed standard by standard. The record was clear. The BZAP found that it was appropriate. So you were about to ask me a question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just saying when you're talking about this sort of use already existing, you're referring to the, the mixed use developments that's on Main Street, where you have commercial on the first floor and generally apartments or condos on subsequent floors. Well, I'm referring to the the term dwelling units has become a real the real sticking point in this and those that same definition for dwelling units the same allowance for dwelling units is what's used on main street and by and large in that district on main street there are dwelling units above commercial but there are also first floor dwelling units an example of that is at the alexander main and park view it's the same it's the same language it's a conditional use on main street as well to be a dwelling unit on the first floor it's not a foregone conclusion. Another example of that is the Bickford, which is a, a senior housing project, but there, there, there are dwelling units on the first floor. It's a little bit of a different zoning case, but there are analogs for first floor dwelling units on Main Street that were approved and allowed to, to propagate underneath the same theory, which is to say, we're trying to encourage commercial on the first floor and, and dwelling above, but in certain instances, we can review for dwelling units on the first floor and approve that. Gotcha. As our time's wrapping up here, what do you see the future needs for Bexley looking like in terms of people we want to have in our community, our teachers, our police officers, like you mentioned, that current housing stock might be, not be suitable for, particularly as prices have inflated pretty significantly over the last handful of years? What does the future of Bexley look like? Yeah, the thing that is, as the more I think about this, the thing that kind of pops to the surface when we talk about affordable housing, what does it mean? Bexley today has affordable housing. It really always has, which we've just talked about. We are looking to continue that and to elevate the standard of that affordable housing. This is consistent on everything we've talked about. It is elevating the standard of affordable housing, ensuring safe environments for those families and their kids, for all of our families and all of our kids, and continuing to provide that resource that our city has always had available to residents into the future. As we return from our conversation with Mayor Kessler, let's take a moment to talk about the Trinity apartment complex, which we haven't addressed as a group outside of that conversation yet. Now that's very different because it's not a ground up development like 
the TCB development spaces are. It's an existing property that's going to be redeveloped a bit. And the city has very different income metrics, as you've heard Ben just talk about. They're setting a 10% of the housing at 100% AMI and then 10% at 80% AMI. But I think that second 10% is optional, depending upon how much of a benefit the developer is interested in receiving. So what have we heard around the community for talk about this? And what are folks' take? You've had the opportunity to hear Ben tell us a little bit about that. And no doubt people are talking about it on the streets. So the Columbus Business First published an article last week that um, Trinity had selected a buyer, Continental Companies owned by Frank Cass, uh, another Bexley neighbor. There is not a formal deal that has been consummated, but they have selected his inquiry as, as the one they'd like to move forward with. I don't have any inside knowledge of that. I've read it in the paper the way others have. I do suspect, again, I don't know the details of what Continental would propose there, but from what I have read and from the economics, I don't think it's a repositioning of the existing buildings. I think it is a total redevelopment of that property that is of the scale and impact like Bexley Gateway that has mixed use, that has um, new buildings, and in many ways brings density to the corridor in ways that excite a lot of people and frankly could bring some commercial revenue to the city that isn't possible for much of our land area. Again, we're not connected to that project in any way, but I have been really heartened by the number of people that have come to me to just get educated. Hey, we want to advocate for some standard of affordability on this new development. This is going to be a major opportunity. Help us think through what does affordability mean? How do developers process this information? I don't have any particular path to influence this project, but I'm really heartened by people getting educated and wanting to advocate for the most inclusive possible solution here. Yeah, and that's really heartening to me as well. It's another direct tie-in to one Bexley, I think, that we talked about in our first episode, and just trying to get the community together and celebrate this diversity and the differences that we have throughout our community. We have a great opportunity to make this city really diverse and learn from each other. And I am really excited about that. And I think we're uniquely positioned in a larger metropolitan area that has a lot of diversity and has people with who work all different kinds of jobs from all different kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of different lived experience and really just making opportunities for people to be able to join our community who are going to enrich that and bring their unique talents and backgrounds means that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, Bexley may look even richer than it looks today. And while we're talking about how we love our community and how we live here, and obviously we've all chosen to be here, people will be talking about that 20 and 30 years from now, and it'll have different aspects that we can't even imagine today. The story that really sticks with me in all of the conversations we've had around our the TCB proposals are folks who have passionately advocated for a strong opinion they have about the project, for it, against it, whatever. But they say, I came here as a brand new school teacher X number of years ago. I started my family here. I bought a house here. I've built my family's wealth here. This place means a great deal to me, and I care about my community. And that is such a great story. And to me, what we're trying to do is to preserve that story. Bexley's affordability has gotten so out of control That school teacher is not moving to Bexley right now. There's no opportunity for a young person or a young early career person to do that. We need to keep creating those opportunities to continue to develop the richness that you just described. Absolutely. I could not have said that better myself. Well, and that's really the essence of what I think partially 
this American dream idea is built on, right? Being able to afford a house and or afford a place to live and make a life. And I think that, again, we have a great opportunity to do that with Bexley and, and these projects. All right. Well, are there any other affordable housing projects in the city that we have not talked about that we should be talking about? I would just say there's there's certainly nothing that we're working on. I mean, I know that we're all going to talk about the Ferndale Mayfield situation until we find a place that lives up to all the other great things we love about our community for those residents and the future residents there. And if I could jump in real quick on Ferndale Mayfield. So when we had the opportunity to speak with Mayor Kessler about affordable housing, he did speak somewhat extensively about Ferndale Mayfield that you won't hear in this podcast. And that's not because we want to stifle the discussion on that. It's simply because there's so much going on there that we think that deserves its own discussion. And we'll be taking up Ferndale Mayfield in a future episode. So we're really looking forward to that. We think there's a lot of uh, richness and opportunity there to talk about. So thank you for bringing that up. And please go on. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no. What I love is that this, in this uniquely Bexley way, where we have so much intelligence per square foot, that there are folks who are really trying to understand this issue and think about affordability, not with a really, really narrow technical definition, but really think about what does it mean to be an inclusive community and how do we create those opportunities whenever and wherever we can. So I think you'll hear conversations about accessory dwellings. You'll hear conversations about mm -hmm. inclusive zoning or other sort of affordability requirements. You'll hear things about just how to get not to limit the affordability of the housing, but to prop up the folks who are getting access to it, like Move to Prosper. You're hearing a variety of tools with a variety of goals, all with the objective of an inclusive Bexley. Well, thank you for joining us today. Mr. Neighbor Beam, and if you don't mind sharing, uh, where do you live? Where have you made your life with in Bexley? I live right behind Harvest in a house Ooh. on Sherwood um, that we were very fortunate to purchase that I would never be able to afford today. <laughs> I um, understand. And uh, love it very much, and I'm looking forward to the parade going right by the house a few days from now. Very nice. Do you get the fantastic smells from Harvest being located right there? We get a variety. We have Cobb and Harvest and, and a variety Ooh. of scents coming through. We know when it's curry day. All right. Well, in, in my life, I would like it to be curry day every day, but people may vary in their opinion there. All right. Well, let's take a minute to talk about what's going on in the community. We'll talk about sort of our community calendar, what's coming up and what to look forward to. I have to admit, Spencer, I am still trying to recover from the wonderful 4th of July celebrations that we have had. And Bexley always does a great job of that. And if you live on the parade route like I do, things get a little crazy in the streets. So I've heard. <laughs> and on the front lines. <laughs> but it's pretty amazing. So that was a great time. But, you know, one thing that I, I know as the summer heat continues to, to build up, uh, we have the Splash Pad opening coming up at Schneider Park uh, on July 9th, which I think a lot of young people are looking forward to. Absolutely. As a, a family with young children, my youngest is four. Uh, splash Pads are very exciting. Do you know any of the details of the Splash Pad? Can we break any of the details here? You know, I, I do not. <laughs> um, but we'll see if we can get some more and, and share those. It's going to be a surprise. Kids yeah. love surprises, too. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I know that there's also a Board of Education meeting, July 12th. Interesting that City Council is off this month mm. for the summer, so their next meeting won't be back again until August 15th if you are interested in City Council meetings. 
Um, but another family-oriented event coming up uh, July 15th is the Family Camp Inn at the library. Oh, tell us more. And uh, gives families an opportunity to experience camping inside the library, bringing the outdoors in. There's, from what I hear, there's uh, opportunities to make s'mores. There's camping-themed entertainment like a cartoon, Hmm. building forts, things like that. So that might be fun for families with uh, younger kids. Absolutely. That sounds, as a family with younger kids, that sounds great. We may very well be there. Hope to see you there. Let's uh, do a quick round robin. Like, what is something that's coming up that everybody's looking forward to? And I am going to put people on the spot here. So this is your your five seconds to think if you haven't already nailed it down. I'll hit first. Fourth of July is huge. It's something I always look forward to. Just like Larry was saying, like, it's huge in the community. The community has changed the parade route this year back from where it was last year to where it was the year before. I really appreciate that because at the end of the day, it's a parade route. It's fun. Everyone's going to have fun anyway. But there really has been an attempt to make sure that everyone gets included by moving it back and forth over the years. And I think that's unusual compared to many communities. And I just want to take a minute to highlight our city government for doing that and paying attention to people's concerns around that and the great job they're doing and the fantastic experience I'm sure we all had with the parade this year. I will add Jazz in the Park, July Mm. July 30th. Love some jazz, love some food trucks. So that is always a big hit for me. And if you haven't been to Havenwood Park recently, it's a South Bexley favorite. They've recently put a foosball table out there that's an outdoor foosball table and an outdoor ping pong table that has all the stuff, the balls and the paddles. Uh, If you have kids and you want to teach them a thing or two you might not have at home, that is there waiting for you whenever you like, including at Jazz in the Park. It'll definitely be popular there. Fantastic. Well, I just want to follow suit with Fourth of July. It is always a very eventful day. The parade is fantastic. Also, give a shout out to the Historical Society. We always have an ice cream booth there. So even though this is an after-the-fact moment, hopefully we will see all of you there. Please come and support. And we also have candidate campaign season coming up. So Ah, there are members of city council who will be campaigning, um, candidates that are running, and the mayor is up for re-election as well. So it should be an interesting summer. I've heard. It will indeed be. And Stacy Grossman, since you didn't mention it at the beginning, do you have any affiliation with the Historical Society? A small one. I recently became president of that, so I'm always happy to make a shout out to the Historical Society and all of our fantastic trustees. We're all very friendly. We love engaging with the public, so please come and see us. That's true. They're super friendly. We are still several weeks away, um, but since I missed the inaugural one last year, I will say uh, the Smoke and Fire Festival down Ah. uh, uh, and South Bexley is something I've been looking forward to. I can almost taste succulent meats just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of uh, aspiring chefs and professional chefs who come out for that. And if you miss the inaugural one, there was a massive turnout. People from both Bexley and surrounding communities. Lots of great food, fun stuff for kids. It's just a good time. All right. Well, I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has come out to look into this issue and taken the time to speak with us, to our special guests, Jeff Beam with the Community Builders and Friendly Neighborhood Residents, enjoying those smells over on North Main, and our illustrious mayor, Ben Kessler, who, as noted, is coming up for re-election, so we may see even more of him than we normally do, although he's great at being involved and being out at all the events. I'm sure we'll see Ben a lot coming up. So for everyone who joined us, And our Bexley DEI faithfuls, 
Larry Dantley Ellison, myself, Spencer Cahoon, and Stacey Grossman. Thank you so much. And thank you, Bexley community members, for listening. And remember, you can listen to us on anywhere you gain your fine podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you like, you can find us. We're around. And the name of the podcast is Larry. Unpacking Bexley.